Hello and welcome to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. I'm your amiable co-host Tim and joining me as always, Catherine. And we are here this week to talk about another not really cinematic failure per se, but a film that um, in our discussion I feel like we feel is, is sort of undervalued, sort of overlooked in terms of modern interesting horror films. And that is The Autopsy of Jane Doe directed by Andre Ovredal, uh, a Norwegian director, probably most famous for his debut, Troll Hunters, um, <laughs> but a, a much smaller film, and really his first uh, American film, uh, or English language film, I guess you could say. Uh, a tiny little film produced by the IFC Midnight Program, so sort of designed from the ground up to be a little bit on the the, the sort of low-end side of horror, the sort of Bloomhouse model. We're going to spend five million bucks or so. We're going to make a movie and then profit right you know underpants gnomes style um but here we have a a curious and enjoyable little horror film uh a sort of single location quiet small cast but pretty cool uh so we're going to sort of dig in to the autopsy of jane doe and hopefully sort of figure out what makes Uverdal a pretty solid horror director in the modern landscape. And that's kind of firmly where he's in. Um, he, uh, after this, uh, took a couple years off and then came back to direct secrets uh, or scary stories to tell in the dark. The 2019 Guillermo del Toro produced adaptation of the classic children's horror series. Um, so he sort of made a name for himself. He's, he's stamped now in the the horror genre and approved by gdt which means you you, you pretty much can do what you want yep you're done you did it well done because if uh, guillermo del toro likes your stuff that means you're the, pretty the, good the sweet cherub <laughs> of a man approves and so i that's approve right. of you because i love guillermo del toro that's Anything right Anything he approves and, uh, of is good and, uh, you know, I've got to say, in, in terms of what Del Toro has produced over the course of his career, like, he doesn't have too many misses. Um, of course, uh, Laura Fanato, the you know, film that he brought over um, pretty early in his career, that was like mid-2000s. That was a really great horror film as well. Like, he's got a good eye for producing, and he's got a good eye for directors that he likes to work with, and Uverdahl has obviously fit that bill. Um, but let's talk a little bit about um, the the autopsy of Jane Doe. I keep wanting to call it the secret autopsy of Jane Doe. I don't know why. I guess because it's so it is a bit of a secret mysterious. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because that's what drives this story, and it's what I think makes the horror work. Um, so the the setup for this is is really quite brilliant. Um, now it is worth noting that this was a script that was on the blacklist. Um, so, you know, dear listener, if you don't know what the blacklist is, uh, it's it's primarily a website and a podcast where unproduced screenplays from Hollywood that are considered sort of top of the pile. Like these are amazing scripts, but for some reason, no one has produced them yet or, you know, things have happened and prevented them from being produced and turned into films. They they, you know, read through the script. They talk about it. They um, sometimes bring the authors in. And this was a blacklist script. Um, so there, there was some real, you know, sort of force behind this one. Um, and, and in general, if you go back and look at blacklist scripts, sometimes they go bad. They really do. Um, one that springs to mind is Joe Wright's adaptation of pan. That was a blacklist script, um, which from an idea standpoint, definitely it's a great idea. Um, execution. Yeah. 
<laughs> less so. Yeah. Yeah. But um, in general, being on the blacklist is a pretty huge deal because uh, it means that your script is a script of quality. And so uh, the setup for this, subtle, simple, um, a small town coroner in Virginia or West Virginia, I think, um, is, is brought a body after a horrific um, sort of seeming home invasion, something happening. Uh, the whole family is dead. A construction worker that was at the site is also dead. And in the basement, half unburied, they find this remarkably well-preserved woman. And um, they need to find out what her cause of death was. They feel it's tied to this other event, but they need to understand who she is, where she came from, you know, what, how did she die? You know, they, they believe she's involved. So this coroner and his uh, son, who works as his medical technician or, or coroner technician, whatever the term would be, they have to, they have a single night to figure out what killed this woman so that this guy can give a press conference in the morning and ideally sort of help the public who's very rattled by this, this event have some way of understanding what happened. So great premise, great setup. Um, our, our conflicts are laid out very quickly. And, and then the rest of the film is just two people in a room with a dead body trying to figure out what happened. I love um, a small setting in horror mm -hmm. just you know we talked about sam raimi the last time and he's another director who does horror in a small scale small setting small locations and it's just so good every time that happens why don't all yeah, horror I mean, and, movies do that <laughs> well yeah i mean and i think we're that's really what we're talking about and overdall even gave some interviews after troll hunter because troll hunter very famously was found footage it was a found footage yeah. movie and he was, you know, for his follow-up, he didn't want to do more found footage, right? He didn't want to be known as a found footage director because that's such a specific style. You kind of build the project around it. So he wanted classic horror. And he said the film that got him thinking about it was The Conjuring, of all things. Yeah. Because The Conjuring and, and the reason, you know, I think even though it's only, it's been less than 10 years, I think people kind of forget that the conjuring was a kind of lightning rod for horror, which is why we've seen these dozens and dozens and dozens of imitators, but it was a lightning rod because it was a, a sort of sneaky return to form for horror, right? Single, you know, small locations, small, small events. Like the conjuring is not a big movie. And by mm -hmm. modern horror comparisons, there's not a ton of stuff that happens. It has its typical goes off the rails, James Wan craziness in the last 20 minutes. I but mean, it's not just... as big as even another James Wan film like Malignant. Malignant no. felt like it was much more <laughs> confused in its setting as well as right. other things. But yeah, The Conjuring had a, a sort of delicious focus to it. And and that stripping back down of the horror genre when it had built back up into this kind of you know, it's it's crazy that in Hollywood, so many genres feel the the pull to blockbuster, right? Like we're constantly moving towards this pinnacle, right? And we have to hit this point where we're spending the maximum amount of money doing the maximum amount of stuff to produce this thing. And what movies like The Conjuring and, and this one to a certain extent as well, like what Sam Raimi espoused as an ethos back in the 80s is that smaller and focused is is oftentimes better in almost, terms of what you end almost up producing. always i i struggle and, to think of yeah. a time that 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 philosophy doesn't help instead of hurt um 
And it's almost to the point where horror is just moving in this endless cycle of let's peel, let's go back to the basics and, and do simple movies again. And then, you know, over the course of the next decade, everything ramps up to these sort of big budget horror films. And then somebody comes along and says, let's step back. a bit." <laughs> so it feels like yeah. this is one of those yeah. let's step back movies. This is a let's step back movie, which, you know, again, this came out in 2016. So it's about six years old now. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of on the, the tail end of that cycle again, but it's yeah. remarkable, especially the ones that get attention from critics, which this was pretty well received critically. It's got like an 83 or 80% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, but generally it's these smaller ones, these experimental ones, you know, sort of like, I mean, Robert Eggers is releasing his new film, the North man, you know, but when the witch or the Vivivich came mm-hmm. out, um, you know, people responded to that because it was, it was this different kind of horror experience. And so I think, you know, horror is always going to have a space. It's a big enough genre that can accommodate both when done. Well, the problem is, is that I think blockbuster horror is much, much harder to pull off Yeah. for some reason. You would think more money, bigger locations, bigger set pieces. You would think that that would actually be like, ah, you know, I want to see this, but generally what you get is, Rob Zombie's Halloween two, you know, where it's like, what are we doing? You know, or even, I mean, I hate to harp on Halloween, but you know, even the, um, the sequel to, you know, Halloween kills, right. Which I I like 20, it was 2018 or, you know, yeah. 2018 Halloween though with Jamie Lee Curtis, the sort of we'll pretend like all the other Halloweens didn't happen. I liked that one. I thought it was really solid. I hated all the teen stuff. You know, that could have just been thrown away. It was a huge waste of time other than having meats on the Barbie for, you know, people to die. But then the sequel to that Halloween kills is off. I mean, I'm not going to say awful. There are moments in it that are fine, but like, it's bad. It's not good. Um, and, and, you know, they seemingly had massive budget, huge dis, you know, stuff at their disposal, and it just ended up going worse, right? All it meant was it was larger for the sake of very little. Again, it's very watchable, especially if you like Halloween and, and those films. Like, there's plenty that happens. It's pretty good. But, you know, I, I didn't see anything that justified either the money spent or, or the money marketed, you know. But anyway, yeah. so... Fortunately, the autopsy of Jane Doe is is the exact opposite of that. So we have a very small cast of characters here. Uh, we've got Emil Hirsch, ostensibly the lead, although I'd say he's co-lead with uh, Brian Cox, who plays his father. Who well, I always Emil love Hirsch. to see in movies. Oh, oh Brian right. Cox is fantastic. So good. Um, like, you know, I mean, I guess to a certain extent, you know exactly what you're getting from Brian Cox. Like he's, especially at this phase in his career, he's kind of, you know who he is and what he's doing. Um, but he's extremely dependable and he can do a lot with very little because this is a very sparse screenplay. There's not a ton of, you know, there's very little exposition, I, I should say, at least about the characters. And so Cox does a great job with what he's given. Uh, and then, of course, Emil Hirsch has been on the show before talking, of course, about Speed Runner uh, or Speed Racer, excuse me. And uh, I think he's good here. Um, I don't love Emil Hirsch and everything that he does. I've, I've listened to a lot of like podcasts and stuff with Emil Hirsch. He seems like an absolutely awesome dude that I am very happy has found success in Hollywood and can live a cool life, but I don't love him in a lot of the movies that he's in. Um, 
and it's not his fault. I mean, I, it's there's nothing about him ostensibly that I'm looking at and going like, I don't like you. This don't movie kind of not. proves that he just takes some really weird roles that I'm not sure are the best fit for him. Yeah, this is just, it, frankly, anybody probably could have played this part, I suppose. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's nothing here that screams Emile Hirsch was made for this. <laughs> but at, a, at the end of the day, you know, not every part that an actor takes needs to have that quality. It's a job. Um, yeah, you know, and and Emil Hirsch very much feels like the kind of guy that you know, he is a working actor, right? Um, now, one of the surprises um, was Emil Hirsch's girlfriend, who's only in the film for a couple of scenes, I mean, two scenes, three scenes, maybe, um, played by Ophelia Lovabond, um, who is is currently starring in HBO's Minx, um, which apparently is quite good. I've only watched the trailer, but I've, I've heard it's very, very good. Um, but she was also Karina in the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, the, the collector's assistant uh, who blows everything up. She played that as well. So this was would have been right after that, I think, maybe a year or two that this came out. So so she's got a small part. And then, you know, we've got a little, like the small town sheriff and some of his deputies, and that's that's pretty much it. There's only about... Maybe there are fewer than 10 actors in this film, but the actor that I think probably is deserving of the most praise is actually Olwen Kelly um, because the Jane Doe that uh, is, is going to be autopsied in this film. Uh, they actually hired a real live actress to play her for, I would say a bulk of the scenes. So this actor, their, their whole job, was to lay entirely motionless on a medical table for, I presume, weeks, fully nude. Um, and this was, when I realized that, I mean, there are a few moments where they have to use a prosthesis. I mean, obviously, they're doing Y incisions and stuff. But for a lot of this, it's just her laying there. And I've, I found out a remarkable choice on Overdahl's part. Um, and it really does add something to the film to have, you know, the person on the slab, not be just a prosthetic or a maquette or, or some other, you know, sort yeah, of like special effect. Yeah. I mean, she is able to actually craft a character, even though her face is expressionless and she's not moving. So incredibly challenging role for any actor to play uh, and for other actors to play off of. Right. I mean, you know, Emil Hirsch and Brian Cox are having to be in a room with this fully nude girl. They have to touch her and, you know, palpitate her and lift her arms and, and move her head around. And, you know, I, I can't imagine how comfortable they would have had to feel on set for all of that to work. And, and it's a testament I, I would oppose, I, I would suggest to all of them, um, but definitely to Overdahl for taking that risk um, because, you know, Oh, what was I watching the other day? I was watching a movie and it was, Oh, it was RoboCop. It was RoboCop. And they were working on Peter Weller on the table. Uh, like after he's been shot as Murphy, but he's still alive and they're trying to save his life. When he was laying on the table, there was a shot like underneath the arm of one of the, uh, uh, doctors and you could see that Weller was just blinking 
like he wasn't holding his eyes open for the <laughs> shot. Like, so it was either like, you know, right, right as a take started or something, but he hadn't like locked his eyes in to remain open yet. And he was just blinking normally. Never noticed it before, but the moment I saw it, I'll never unsee it. Right. Mm. Like never, I will always look for that. And so, you know, it was like, I, I, uh, arrow video just released a 4k RoboCop set. And I, I have only ever had like crappy RoboCop Blu-rays, just the, you know, MGM $5 bin ones from way back in the day. So I bought that and it's glorious. I mean, it's truly one of the best things I've ever seen, even though it's an eighties grainy and they didn't shoot it. I mean, it wasn't shot like extremely well at the time. I mean, not well in terms of its technique, but like the film stock, they used the heavy amounts of grain. Like it it was, they were using the cheap shit. And, you know, it was an Orion film in the late eighties, right? We got 80 bucks and finally, six people were going to make this movie here. And then I'm going to go buy another box of stogies, you know, like that's, that was Orion in the eighties. But, um, but man, it, it was, it was really cool uh, experience to, to watch it in that kind of fidelity. Uh, that costume still works super well. Um, we're also watching the halo show on Paramount plus. Have you seen that yet? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I like it. I like it quite I've a bit. I've heard some people like it. I'm, I know. Yeah. I mean, you don't have any sort of you see Master Chief's butt. Apparently, I did hear that there is there is some some male nudity. Yes, quite a bit. Um, well, I endorse that. I always. Endorse I mean, it's it's uh, it's Pablo Schreiber. It's Liv Schreiber's little brother. So oh. I mean, oh, who doesn't want to see his butt? I'll see well, his butt. Not yet. <laughs> and the only way, the only thing I knew him from, he played um, in the American Gods TV show. He played the leprechaun character in that, <laughs> which is funny because in, in American gods, leprechauns aren't little. They're actually yeah. like these massive, like six foot five like beasts that get drunk at pubs and beat the shit out of everybody. Um, But he, he played the character in that. And, but the, what I was going to say on the Robocop side, like techniques used to build that Robocop suit are the exact same techniques that they were using to build that master chief suit. Like the, where they choose to put the seams, the way that they have the underlayments that kind of build up so that you make it look more mechanical, even though it isn't, this is very clever. It's, it's a very, very nice practical suit that they put those characters in and master chief isn't the only Spartan. So they've actually got like five different Spartan suits that they built for that show. And it, it looks good. It's just not bad. That's neat. But anyway, back to the secret autopsy or the, the autopsy of Jane Joe. Um, so I, I applaud them for making that choice. And I think it does do a lot to, to bring life to, to this, you know, she does truly, as you said, become a character in the, in the film, which is cool. Um, so anything else to sort of off the bat, I think we can just get right into it. Uh, we are going to spoil this film. There are some some secrets, as I said, I keep wanting to call it the secret autopsy of Jane Doe, um, because there is a central mystery that these two individuals uncover over the course of this very, very long night trapped in their family morgue, uh, which is a great setting for <laughs> a horror film. Um, but uh, any other thoughts before we, we start spoiling it? I don't think so. All right. Um, so off the bat, again, if you just want a recommendation, you want to go find this. Uh, I don't think it's streaming f- on any service at this moment. It pops on um, and off Netflix a lot. It is a, a popular Netflix choice. You might be able to find it on one of the free ones that cycle through periodically, but it is available for rent on any of the digital services. You can find it there. And, and I would say it's worth the couple of bucks to rent and watch, especially if you've never seen it. Um, but uh 
pretty pretty good recommend for me. Uh, this was a surprisingly good little horror film. I'm not going to say it's perfect. Uh, there's certainly some things about it that we'll get into that um, hold it back from being perhaps an all-time classic. But if you like quieter, smaller, thoughtful horror, this is certainly right up your alley. I agree. All right. So the film opens, um, as we mentioned, with a, a murder, right? So the cops have been called to a, a typical, regular suburban family home. They walk into several grisly murders, right? A local uh, contractor and then uh, a husband and a wife and seemingly perhaps even a, a couple of the children uh, are all dead and they've been stabbed. They've been shot. They've you know been, been beaten to death. Um, all of these crazy things. And, and the scene just doesn't make sense, right? We've got a couple of really great, very quiet shots of the sheriff just kind of walking through the various rooms and, and, and trying to piece together what exactly has gone on here. But then everything comes to a head and focuses when they reach the basement and they find that in the basement, half dug up, was a, a woman. A dead right? body. A dead body. And so it, we hear a couple of different theories about what might have happened, that maybe the contractor was trying to hide a body in the basement and was caught, so he felt he had to kill the family, and then he was killed. Um, you know, just nothing sounds plausible. But, you know, the the I guess the thing that we're supposed to remember from this scene is one of them says, well, it doesn't look like they were it looks like everybody was trying to get out, not that anybody was trying to get in. Right. And so the, you know, that kind of is the, the striking thing. Uh, then we're introduced to our, our main characters. So namely, uh, was it Tommy? Is that his name? Uh, yeah. uh, Tommy is Tommy, Brian yeah. Cox, Tommy Tilden. Uh, so he's Austin the, is the son. right. And Austin Tilden is played by Emil Hirsch. And so this may be something that if you live in a, a sort of larger area, you're not familiar with, but in smaller counties, much like the one that I currently live in, generally your coroner is also just like your local mortician. Yeah, your right? funeral so home. Your funeral home director also serves double duty as as your coroner. Um, and and so you that's kind of what we find here. We find the, the Tilden family funeral home that was opened by Tommy Tilden. Uh, as a young man, and he is now serving as the county coroner, probably to make ends meet. I mean, that's that's usually the way I've heard that you fall into that, that it's another revenue stream when your funeral home business isn't doing that great. Um, we don't know that for sure, but it, again, I'm, I'm kind of extrapolating based on my own knowledge of how these systems kind of work in smaller communities. And so he's a coroner. He takes it very seriously. That's one thing I do like about it is that he has all of these, you know, he's trained for this. He takes it seriously. He has this, you know, intense understanding to know what true cause of death was for an individual. Um, and that's really where we open is they are in the midst of an autopsy of a local man who was found uh, in a home that uh, burned. And so like, He's testing Austin, I guess, like what, you know, what killed this guy? And Austin's like, well, smoke inhalation, right? He was in, he died in a fire. And his dad's like, but did he? Right. And so <laughs> immediately we kind of get this idea that we're going to, we're going to get a little bit of Agatha Christie in this, right? Like, you know, what is the true cause of death? 
And, and so with this guy, it's, it wasn't that he died of smoke inhalation. His lungs didn't have any smoke in them, implying that he actually died of, it was like a brain hemorrhage or a stroke. He died of that. And then the house set on fire because he was, you know, not tending to the oven or whatever he should have been doing. And so, you know, that's, they're kind of establishing that they listen to music while they do it. It's a very, you know, they, they have a good rapport with each other. You know, it's a great scene to establish who these characters are and what they do. And to um, establish that they are not grossed out or afraid of bodies. Absolutely. They're very seasoned. You know, there's none of that, oh my God, a dead body. You know, they're very comfortable <laughs> right. with what they do, obviously. But sometimes movies get that wrong. Where, you know, you have to have that <gasps> gasp moment when they see, you know, this corpse. But they're they're very nonchalant about it, which I kind of like. Yeah, it was an interesting choice to establish that they, you know, and if you know anybody that works, you know, in medicine, but especially in in sort of mortuary services, the human body just does not bother you yeah. in that state anymore. It's it's just meat, right? Like that's it. And and you just move on. And it's it's a very it's a very harsh thing to see portrayed accurately like that. Um and they even play around with it a little bit more because uh, Emil Hirsch, Austin, uh, his, his character, is, has a girlfriend and she's come to visit him at work and take him away. They're going to go out to dinner, see a movie or something. And she sort of is, is touring the facility, which apparently she's done before, but this time she wants to see a dead body. And so there's this scene where they you know, open one of the drawers and it's a gunshot victim who committed suicide. So like the you know, some really good practical effects in this. Like you can see there's a body underneath there, but like the face is gone, you know, and the, the sheet is all sunken in. And then they've, the only thing that was a little goofy is they tied a bell around him. And so, you know, anybody, to me, anybody who's watched movies for the last 30 years, you know what this is. Yeah. I think even that dumb nun movie that <laughs> they made out of the conjury to refer to the, when big budget horror goes wrong. Um, they have a whole scene in that where it's like, you know, the pole bells in the, in the cemeteries so that the bodies can, so it, I mean, it's a very dead. scary concept. I, I can it see is. why movies love terrifying. to keep bringing it back. And this one's even more specific because, you know, this is a morgue. They're putting the bodies inside the boxes on, on, you know, the trays, the typical thing. And, um, they tied a bell around this, this guy's foot. And it's a nice scene. It's it's a good jump scare. She's like going in to look at the body and take the, you know, take the cover off so she can see the reality of it. And then the dad like shakes the foot and rings the bell and freaks everybody out. And, you know, and he has a good little laugh. And I was like, yep, that's that's a that's a boomer move. My dad would do that <laughs> any day yeah. of the week. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was a nice scene. But really, that's where uh, Ophelia Lovabond comes in. We meet her a little bit. And then the key thing from that scene to take away is that she plans to come back and pick Austin up later. Right. Because this body comes in right as he's getting ready to leave. And he decides rather than let his dad work on it alone, he's going to to stay and assist because of the, the time constraints. And we're also told that Austin doesn't have an intention of carrying on the family business. He sees it as a job. He's doing it for now just until he can make ends meet and do something else. You know, so there's there's some tension, some latent tension there between him and his father that's kind of going unspoken. And he's trying to support him. And then I guess what gets revealed later is that the mother um, 
has recently died uh, about a year ago and that she, there was something wrong with her either. And I, I was going to ask, you actually get your read on this. Do you think she was sick and then she killed herself for that? Or was she was just, uh, the implication I got was she was just sort of, she was depressed, right? She was dealing with mental I, problems. I thought it was mental illness that caused yeah. her suicide. And, and she ends up killing herself. And so the dad is carrying all this guilt that he didn't see what was going on and he couldn't help. And then, of course, the son is just sort of like caught in the middle and he feels for his father, but he's still angry about his mother's death. So there's there's some nice family dynamics running in the background here. That is not the focus of this film at all. But you can tell, you know, from a screenwriting standpoint, they knew that these characters needed to have something going on under the hood to sort of motivate them, especially, I guess, in the in the last act of the film. Some of these issues crop up. Um as they're, they're trying to reconcile all of this stuff that they've discovered. But so the body comes in and, you know, I, I really like that. They just immediately get to work. There's some really nice jump cuts that Overdahl puts in place. Um, you know, he doesn't really, this is a very sparse movie. There is no wasting of time in this at all which I think is one of the things that makes it really good. If this movie was two and a half hours, I think it would be intolerable. I agree. <laughs> like absolutely unwatchable, no matter what they did with it. But this is a swift 90 minutes and out like this is very quick and, and it's perfect. It is perfect for the story that is being told. Um, so they, they, as I said, they bring the body in, they get everything set up and we get a nice little montage of them sort of prepping a body. As you can tell, they've done hundreds, if not thousands of times. And then they start doing their initial, their initial analysis of, uh, you know, the state of the body and things start immediately getting sort of red flagged, right? Her wrists are broken. Her ankles are broken. Um, she's busted. <laughs> yeah. Like there are, there are significant issues with the body that, don't seem to basically the, the the next sort of middle act of the film is them saying everything that we're seeing here doesn't track with what we're seeing here. Right. So her, everything, all this stuff is broken, but she's not bruised, right? There's no bruising on her body. There's no lesions. You know, she's got all these injuries. She's got all this stuff wrong with her, but there's nothing to indicate that that's a problem from the outside. Looking at her, she's in perfect well, she's dead, but she's in, in health, right? Like her skin is fine. Her body's fine. She hasn't, doesn't have any, uh, lividity. She's, um, she looks alive. I mean, that's, that's one thing yeah. about using the, the living person to play the role that was kind of important is that she just doesn't look dead. Doesn't look like a dead body at all. Exactly. Doesn't even have and the posture of a dead body. No, no. I mean, there's just none of the re retraction or, you know, sort of bodily, the things you would expect out of a dead body. And so they're told right off the bat that this is, this is mysterious, that she was found in this dirt, um, you know, that, you know, so they're like, well, maybe she was preserved longer or maybe the body was, you know, brought down from somewhere else because they start finding stuff under her fingernails that wouldn't seem to be dirt that they would find in their area. And then the, you know, the next part of the movie is really just them sort of quite literally peeling back the layers of this character and seeing sort of where they go and um, what they find. And structurally speaking, it's nearly perfect. Like there are a few lulls in the action where they, they take a break because of some, you know, startling discovery they've made. 
But for the most part, the film hits a pace and then sort of maintains that pace really up until the very, very end. And it's extremely watchable. I think it's a pretty engaging film. There's not a lot of room in this to sort of duck out and, you know, check your phone or, or, you know, see what's going on on Twitter, that kind of thing. And it's, and that for me, even in great horror movies, that is not something that I can always say. It That's doesn't right. always work out that way. Um, I guess let's talk a little bit about the cinematography before we get too much into just the rest of the plot, because I think this film is shot extremely well, like shockingly well. The color palette is incredible. The camera movements are subtle for the most part. There's no big camera motions in this, which is as I was watching it the second time really stood out to me is that there's not a lot of camera trickery. Um, which, you know, has become sort of a hallmark of, of modern horror, right? We got to do weird shit with the camera all the time. Like that's, you know, and Sam Raimi's a little bit at fault for that. I'll, I'll let him have the, the bear, some of the brunt of there responsibility you go, you for did that one thing wrong, <laughs> you know, um, and not so much that it's, it's even wrong. It's just that not every horror movie needs that, right? You don't have to necessarily do that to create a sense of terror. And, and this film, I think in its, in its quietude, and the the sort of locked off, very stable cinematography that it's doing, it sort of increases the tension, right? The stillness, you can feel how wrong it is, right? There should be more happening here, but there isn't. And it, it sort of works, I don't know, it seems to work with what the film is doing. Um, and Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, I can say, had a similar approach for a lot of things. That's a bit flashier, and you have more you know, sort of weird stuff you have to show on screen. So, you know, you're going to do some more strange things, but this one is a very restrained movie from a cinematography standpoint. And I, I think it works. I like it a lot. It's, it's shot very beautifully. Lots of inserts, uh, lots of inserts, lots of slow, you know, pushes. Um, one of the things I love about, you know, like Fincher and um, Darren Aronofsky are like they're they're real rapid quick cuts to establish scenes, you know, where they come in and they and they show you like five or six little shots of things to help you understand what the context of a scene is. And Overdahl is very much doing that a lot here as well, especially during sort of the the autopsy montages where he'll just show you very quick flashes. Here's a test tube with a you know blood falling through it. Here is you know the saw spinning and and you know just sort of very carefully and and occasionally crafts these really quick hit little you know b shots basically but they're cut in such a way that it sort of just keeps everything flowing along and um so for this to be his second movie after his first movie is found footage it's remarkably adept right like it's it's the kind of stuff you expect to see from a, a sort of high level a-list director as far as building out their you know their scenes and their moments so you know, I think it was pretty good. Um, and for a film that takes place, I mean, I would say, what would you say? 75% of it is in that one room. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's, that's where that small scale comes back. Like there's, there's almost, there's like no variation in the set, but yet still manages to make it interesting to watch. Like I didn't feel exactly. bored, even yeah. though this was in one room. Precisely. My point is that one location horror films, the risk 
the inherent risk in doing that is that you increase visual the likelihood of visual boredom because you're not able to show your audience new things to re-engage them. Now, in a film about an autopsy, you've got the fallback of the body, right? You can shoot the body, you can shoot gore, you know, you've got things there that you can use, but still in the back of any good director's mind is going to be, well, but how can I keep these shots visually interesting? How can I keep this location fresh? How can I make it seem different? And a lot of it comes down to lighting. Uh, the lighting does subtly change throughout this film. Um, there are primarily two sort of bright fluorescent lights over the top of the body that illuminate the vast majority of the room. And, and the rest of it is mostly in darkness, but that does shift subtly over the course of the film. They bring in other lights and illuminate in other ways um, to sort of make the room look fresh again. But it's, it's a compelling design and it's a really compelling set. And, you know, for me anyway, I think that's one of the things that helps me see just what kind of level of skill is, is going on here, right? Like Overdahl knew the challenges of a film like this coming in, which is a lot of times a movie that winds up on the blacklist and doesn't get produced. It's because that script presents challenges that, you know, a large group of directors who have looked at that script say, I don't know how to tackle that challenge. Conversely, right. I don't want to tackle that challenge. Right. Or yeah, just straight up. I don't want to do that. That seems like a difficult thing to do. I want to do this instead. And so, you know, I, I applaud him for being willing to sort of jump in. Um, now, after the initial sort of autopsy scene, we do get a walkthrough, a very slow walkthrough of the rest of the facility. So um, I talked a little bit about this with my partner after we watched it because she was like, well, why, you know, couldn't they go up just into the house? Why weren't there stairs? And I was like, well, again, I don't know, but drawing once more on my intuition, a lot of funeral homes, the, the family also lives there, yeah, right? Like it's also your place of residence. And while I think many of them, they do have ways to, you know, get into the family home from the mortuary side. I am aware of some people that when they build out the mortuary component, they make it inaccessible from the family side. Yeah. Like you'd have to right. go out and then find the external entrance. Right. And so in this case, that's kind of like a, uh, like a storm door on the outside that they see, they go up the spiral staircase and then it takes them to this little platform. And then there's a push door that they go out and, and that's how they get in and out. Or at least that seems to be how most of the time they go out. There is an elevator where people can bring bodies down, but that again, doesn't seem, that seems like it opens, you know, to the exterior of the home. Um, so, but the nice thing is, is as we're getting that tour, we get a couple of cool little things that become relevant later. Like the electricity's kind of bad. He's like tapping the lights to make sure they turn back on. There's a hallway mirror, typical if you're pushing gurneys down hallways, so you don't run into things. There's one of those like reflective, you know, convex um, hallway mirrors so you can see around the corner, which becomes important later. And then we find out that they also have a cat who likes to run around in the, the vents, right? So you can see these pieces, <laughs> you yeah. see these things that are being set up as future, you know, horror moments, but it's, it's done subtly. It's done nicely. But I really wanted to say how much I like the design of, of, you know, the parlor, the hallways, you know, the, it's, it's very like 50s, 60s retro. The walls are kind of blood red. The doors are this teal. It's, it's just beautiful, right? Yeah. Like somebody designed this place with color in mind. 
you know, again, they, they solved a bunch of their problems in advance, knowing things that were going to pose challenges, you know, as they got deeper into the shoot and worked super well. And I also love that our first jump scare comes from the girlfriend uh, as she arrives, like he's turning lights out and he's freaked out being down there by himself. And then she just appears implying that she knows how to get in and she scares the ever living crap out of him. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know how much we want to spend on this part, but again, he, you know, the dad sort of teases her, you know, shows off the body and, you know, we get a little bit of the background story of the conversation between, you know, the son and the dad, not necessarily wanting to, the son's not necessarily going to be there for the dad forever. Right. And that's kind of the implication. Um, but then things get weird. Yay. <laughs> the opening is fine. Like it's enough, you know, but by the 20 minute mark, things get strange. The sheriff has arrived. He's got the file on the body, the initial, you know, sort of set photos. And now the mystery is, is engaged. And so I, I do we want to go? I guess we can go ahead and spoil it. I guess it doesn't matter. Okay. Um, this woman is not a woman in the, I mean, she is a woman, but she's not a dead body that was being lugged around by some contractor who was trying to hide it in a basement on a renovation project that he was doing. She's not a murder um, victim in the traditional sense of the word. No. And, and the fun of this film, honestly, is watching these two characters come to the realization that that's true. And there are some key points in this process. I mean, they start doing their initial observation. They note that her waist is quite small, almost as if she would have, you know, very commonly worn a corset. Um, they note the broken ankles and the broken hands, all of that shot very well. Great sound effects, man. There's just nothing like grinding of bone <laughs> on bone to, to make your teeth get a little on edge. Um, but really everything begins when they make their first incision into her body. And so what this film is doing and, and what I think makes it so interesting is that it is also the challenge of how do you scare these two highly trained, seen it all kind of people with nothing but a dead body. Right. And so this this movie takes a couple of interesting approaches. And one of them is to start basically amping up the 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 things that they're hearing and seeing in the world may or may not be real. Yeah. So they listen to the radio while they do this. For example, a song starts playing over the radio that they don't recognize. Um, the lighting begins to change, you know, just things begin to become unsettled. And even just based on the very, very quick you know, cuts of their world that we've been introduced to at this, you know, 20, 25 minute mark in the film, things just seem off, right? Sounds are coming from places they shouldn't come from. Doors are unlatching on the, the morgue, you know, these, these very sort of like and small I, things. I love it because they, they have sort of the, the reaction you would expect where they're like, that's stupid. We're being stupid. Why mm -hmm. we shouldn't be freaked out by this. This is a normal thing. But then it just, it keeps escalating. Right. And escalation is the term. This film has a wonderful escalation to it. Um, they, uh, they do discover, and I think the first 
point where my partner was kind of ready to nope out was the uh uh her tongue has been ripped out uh which again not a super common thing to see um good effects you know nicely nicely executed um but we've got brian cox at the center of this is this sort of you know head of the family the patriarch of this this tiny fractured family but he you know takes control and and he is a pathologist right he is the guy that is he solves these problems and that's what he does and he's not going to stop so they have this chalkboard with a human body on it where they can make notes about the things they've discovered and he starts sort of you know writing that out and 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 doing those things which i think that that kind of visual representation of their discoveries it's super important. Like it's so helpful and you could see again, if that was in the script, fantastic. If they came up with it as a way to ensure that, you know, the audience could follow along and have a quick reference point for what, you know, what they've discovered in the mystery. It's a brilliant visual reminder and very, very important for, you know, a movie that, that has some technicality to it. Like you do have to pay attention to what they're discovering here in order for this stuff to make sense. By the time that the final reveals are made, like you've got it right. You're good. But these little things at the beginning, um, there's a, there's a point where the, uh, massive fly like crawls out of her nose. I, that was rough, man. That's, that's a hard scene. Um, but you know, the the clues that they get at the beginning are so ran, seemingly random and varied that you can't piece it together and that's one of the things i really like about this script is that you you only truly know what's going on when the script reaches a specific point and they are ready for you to know that which is so difficult in a mystery right and then i mentioned i know i mentioned agatha christie earlier but that's what made Agatha Christie the best. I mean, really ever mystery writer is that you had all the clues in front of you. Everything is there. All of it's laid out for you, but you don't truly understand exactly what happened until she lays it out. Right. You think you do. You've got enough information to develop theories, but you can't actually know until, you know, she delivers the final hammer blow or, or Poirot does or whoever. And that's kind of where we're at here right now. And, but it's not in such a way that it's like the movie's not giving me clues. The movie's giving you lots of clues. And if you are knowledgeable of the situation, uh, which, you know, we are given some of our, our past work history and things we had to know for stuff that we did. Um, so I picked up very quickly. Oh, (laughs) Oh, but, you know, but I didn't know for sure. And I didn't have any true understanding of what was going on until, you know, much later. Yeah. And that I think that that's that's the hallmark of a well-written mystery. Right. When you have all the clues in front of you and if, if you've got outside knowledge to bring in, maybe that helps. Otherwise, you know, you're going to be, you know, sort of following along with these characters. And so, you know, I. Aside from some great practical effects, right? Because when they start doing the autopsy, like they, for all intents and purposes, they had to build a complete dead human body. <laughs> and uh, and based on what, what little I know about practical effects, that is a super expensive thing to do. <laughs> yeah, and make it look at all convincing. 
Exactly. And it does. Uh, there are a couple of shots where you can be like, uh, you know, um, you know, oh, that's, you know, that's, that's a prosthetic or mostly because when you've got a, a real live, you know, actor laying there and then you switch to a, a shot of a prosthetic version of that, it's never going to look quite right. Yeah. You know, um, but really everything changes in the film. The moment that they make the first cut of the Y incision into the body, uh, the radio starts freaking out, the lights start flickering. And, and that's really where this journey begins. And so as they continue to, you know, delve into the body, strange things continue to happen. One, they make the Y incision, the body bleeds, right? That's if you know not anything about dead, to happen. <laughs> if you know anything about dead bodies, and I watch a lot of SVU, so I do, um, dead bodies don't bleed, right? <laughs> There's no heart to pump blood. But the dad's got an explanation, right? He's like, oh, well, I've seen this once before because... Part of the issue here, and I like that none of the characters are like heroes, like there are no heroes in this story. The dad, you can tell he's a know-it-all, right? He likes to seem like he's always got all the answers and he's got it all figured out. And part of the, you know, his character arc is as he, as they're forced to confront this, you know, unnatural horror that's happening around them, he's forced to confront that he didn't have all the answers in regards to his wife's illness and her eventual suicide. And, and, you know, so there's like a, there is a progression there, I think. And, and again, Cox doesn't have a ton to work with on the page in terms of dialogue, but I think he does a lot to help us, you know, sort of see how his character is growing through this experience. If, if you can call it character yeah. growth, I don't know if you can, but I think, yeah, I you know, think so. I mean, I mean you know, the characters have arcs. character yeah. growth, so it's it's going to be lighter <laughs> than most other films. It's not going to be like a drama or anything, but Tommy but no, found a blue it. jean jacket. He's <laughs> a character now. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. It's for a horror film. This is this would be considered good character development for sure. Um, again, things continue to go wrong. Uh, some of the samples that they took of the body begin to, you know, cause issues or you know if if there's blood in a vial it never stops and it just keeps going and so you know again i don't know if we have to belabor the point but i think ultimately the where the movie gets interesting is all of the things that begin happening around them as they are completing the autopsy they discover all kinds of strange things you know namely that she's got all the scar tissue all over her lungs and her heart that make it look like she's been stabbed multiple times but again, there's no evidence of that. Um, and, you know, again, I, there's no reason to beat around the bush. Uh, she was a witch. Yeah. Right. They discover that she's got finger under her nail or uh, dirt under her fingernails that could have only really come from up north. Right. That's all they really refer to it as is up north. But in essence, um, what we are seeing here is the body of a witch who was tortured, beaten, burned ritually sacrificed in order to ward off the demons uh, hundreds of years ago at the time that this film was made, but whose body is somehow strangely perfectly preserved. And so, you know, some of the striking moments within that autopsy are um, they peel her skin back and find that her skin was tattooed with uh, all of these ritualistic symbols to try and I presume to ward off or contain the power within her. They had dropped a, uh, I guess the, 
where things really start getting obvious is they find a sack of um was her teeth i guess it was her teeth yes they like ripped out her teeth or some of her teeth and then they put them in a bag and dropped them in her stomach and you know and and when they unfold the bag it's got all these you know ritualistic symbols on it and eventually they figure out that if you fold them it gives a date and the date is you know the salem witch trials and you know so that's that's the big dun, reveal dun, of this film <laughs> exactly and and how you how you take this film i think will be how willing you are to go along for that particular ride if you go like, oh, no, nah, then you're not going to like this. <laughs> you might. I don't know. But it's it. I think it, it's a downward sliding scale. But I think it's a good reveal and it's earned. Right. They don't just drop it. It's very much like, a oh, we're figuring this out as we go. Oh, my gosh. But that's not really where a lot of the horror moments come from. They certainly get some jump scares out of that. They get some gross scares out of that. But the horror comes from what's happening around the Tildens as these discoveries are being made. Uh, so we mentioned before, like morgue doors, you know, popping open and then they go over and they seem fine. But there are several points where they have to halt the autopsy because um, the power goes out over the, the radio. They start hearing that there's a massive storm rolling in one of the biggest they've ever seen. And that that massive storm is, is going to affect power. There's flooding, you know, there's all this stuff happening. And so their power goes out, the generator kicks in the elevator stops working, so they don't think they can get out easily. Um, and then, of course, there's this big uh, moment and all the mortuary doors kick open and all the bodies are gone. And so they start hearing tingling bells walking down the thing. They start seeing shadows in the convex mirror. Now you know why the bells the... were in the movie. <laughs> that's right. That's why we had the bells. That's why we had the mirror, right? It's like they build all of our jump scares out of those you know, sort of previously established things. And so there's a body going around. Uh, the dad gets, he goes to the bathroom. He cuts himself when he's doing, uh, he's doing the rib separation to get at her heart and internal organs. And he ends up cutting her himself badly on, on one of the bones. And so he goes to the bathroom to fix it, gets attacked by, you know, an unseen force. The cat is killed up in the vents and they find the body there. And, and so like, there's all of this, you know, very traditional, sort of horror jump scare stuff. And the reviews that I read, the ones that didn't like it, this is where the film lost them, right? Like they felt, Oh, now we're just, we've just evolved into horror schlock. What the F, you know? And I'm like, well, that is kind of horror movies though. That's what horror movies do. I mean, for one, and, and there has to be threat, right? There has to be something for this to be a horror movie instead of like a weird autopsy movie there has to be some kind of supernatural force at work, I suppose. And that, and it's not like the film was hiding that it builds to it very naturally. Um, you know, when the bigger moments start coming, you know, you knew they were on their way. There's no, no shock to them, but the, the real horrific things begin when these, the question gets posed is what are we seeing? What is real and what isn't? That's the issue. And so later in the night, they, the, the generator kicks on and, you know, so they're like, oh, the elevator's working. We can get out of here because that was probably my favorite moment in the film is things get real weird. And finally, as, as good horror movies do, like Tommy Tilden, Brian Cox looks at his son is like, we're getting the fuck out of here. 
right? Like we are gone and, and it's, and it's good, right? It's, you know, I I know I've referred to like sinister before being a good movie for having like a clear justification of why the character stays in it longer than they should. But then that movie also has a great moment where the characters go like, we out, we gone, we're not doing this anymore. But the, and I think the true mark of a horror film is it's always just too late. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's where, you know, everything sort of, of rolls, rolls downhill here is that it's, it's too late. They've waited too long and they've done too much because the, the implication is, is that the moment they started doing injury to this body, not realizing, but still they, they were doomed, right? Like there, there was something coming for them that they couldn't stop. And so there's, there's a good, you know, quite a few good horror scenes. They've got a classic, like the shadow underneath the, the bottom of the door, you know, out in the hallway kind of stuff, you know, there's good bangs, good, you know, stuff falling over, getting kicked, you know, what have you. But what we come to realize is that a lot of the horror that they're experiencing is just them, right? Like the world as they're seeing it is not real. And so they're trapped in the elevator. They have, they've picked up a hatchet from somewhere um, because they were trying, they got locked in the room and they were trying to like get out of the door. So they were hatcheting through the door and then they get into the elevator and they hear somebody coming and the dad just kind of like hits whoever it is through the elevator door. And we're led to believe that it's a dead body, but it's right. That it's one of the dead bodies, but it's not, it's, it's Samuel Hirsch's girlfriend, Olivia, whatever, love a bond. Um, and, and so she dies. Then they're like, oh my God, what have we done? You know, and, and there's some good practical effects there. Like she's got a huge gaping wound in her chest and she's like sucking for air. It's like, well, that's, you know, effective. Good. <laughs> that's horrible. <laughs> this is terrible. But ultimately, you know, what, you know, we, we get a little bit of that. The world as we have been seeing it as the audience through the Tilden's eyes is not reality. Right. So everything kind of comes to a head. The dad realizes that it's the autopsy that's done it. And then he sort of, I don't know, what would you say? He offers himself up to the witch and says, you know, don't kill him. I'll, yeah. I'll let you have this. The Just don't sacrifice. kill him. Keep him safe. Right. Yeah. And again, you know, the, the character arc that, that Brian Cox is going on is of being, of acknowledging that he didn't have all the answers, that he wasn't in control and as a result, you know, his wife, he ignored things that might have been able to help her. And then, of course, Emil Hirsch eventually reveals that, you know, he wasn't really planning to go into the family business, that he had other ideas. And, you know, they, they have a little bit of a conflict over that. And so as we as the film comes to an end, we ultimately sort of the dad sacrifices himself and basically all of the injuries committed to the witch get committed to his body and then undone on the witch's body. Right. So all of her broken bones mend the Y incision closes, right. Her eyes, which have been as kind of milky white for the entire thing. Cause she's been dead for who knows how long her eyes go back to normal, this sort of you know, regular hazel color. And, you know, and then right as he's reaching the end, the son sort of puts him out of his misery, stabs him through the heart, and kills him. And I don't know. I found it really compelling. I, I found it to be a really great scene uh, aside from, you know, the sound effects and the visual effects, you know, the, the 
damage being done to the body and, and undone from the other body were nicely nicely done yeah i enjoy a good subtle gore effect right mm-hmm. i mean in this movie is not especially subtle i, I guess but but well, there I mean, is some I really good like sort the of body done. never moves you know you kind of expect never. that eventually she's gonna get up and walk like i really thought the movie was gonna take a stupid turn and do that and i was waiting mm-hmm. for it i was like okay this is where she gets up and she starts witching around and then she's a witch and it's going to be right. stupid, but it never happens. She's still a dead body. She's a dead body the whole time and just lifeless on the slab. Almost like this yep. is her brand of witchcraft, just to be a dead body. Maybe. <laughs> um, and I do like there is a little sort of a late game insinuation, you know, because they I guess it's Austin who says, oh, what, what was she a Salem witch? And the dad's like that. The witch trials were garbage they were a hoax like none of those girls were witches they were just little girls yeah and then the insinuation is that because she was tortured as a witch would have been tortured because she had these ritualistic things done to her to you know cast off the witchiness that they actually created a real one right that that they basically made a witch because of their fear of witches. And this is the result, which I, I liked that. That's a nice, that's a subtle way to acknowledge that the witch trials happened, but to place the, you know, the blame where it squarely belongs on the people who perpetuated those atrocities, not on the victims. Right. So this girl has become a witch, but she was, but as a result of being a victim of terrible things done to her. And so I liked that. That was a nice kind of subtle rescue. Cause I think if they had just said, Oh, she was a witch and they did this to her and now she's witching it up 400 years later yeah. or whatever. I think that would have been a really problematic story point. Um, you know, like, cause then you have to, then you would be acknowledging that the witch trials weren't, you know, absolute bullshit dreamed up by, you know, crazy Puritan assholes. Yeah. So, um, so that was, that was clever. I thought it was like, okay, we want to have this. We want to tie back to this cultural thing, which, you know, I, I understand even if, if any reference to the Salem witch trials and, and the horrors of that is, is sort of like problematic. Right. And it, and it is a touchstone that I think does get sort of bandied around in horror, probably more than it needs to as, as a like, Ooh, <laughs> the witch trial. you know, like, you know, you watch the crucible or something, I guess the purpose of it's a little bit different, but even that is sort of drawing upon your cultural knowledge of what the witch trials were and being like, Oh, is it real? Is it not? And this movie's like, no, it was all bullshit, but because those people were assholes, they did it. You know, they made, <laughs> they made it happen by being assholes. And so, you know, that, that perspective I thought was fairly clever. But so the, the, all of the, the autopsy work that they've done to the witch is seemingly undone. Uh, she's right back to being the, you know, sort of oddly perfect corpse that she was at the beginning. It's almost like and resetting a trap. It, to an extent, yeah. That it feels yeah, like, well, this of. is going to continue because they're going to find her body again. I mean, this is, you can kind of, you, well, you walk backward to the beginning of the film and you're like, oh, I see mm-hmm. what happened. Yeah. I get it. Now. Somebody ditched this thing. Yeah. Somebody had this happen to them. And so as, as the movie goes on, what you start to realize, what you come into focus on is that the initial crime that sort of brought the police to the scene in the first place, they too had discovered the body. They started to see things, hear things. They felt that they couldn't get out of their home. They felt trapped. They began killing each other, you know, like 
what we've been seeing has been happening because the radio has been telling them, oh, there's this terrible storm. No one can get out. Everything is awful. But the girlfriend just walks in and she comes in through the elevator, which supposedly wasn't working. And, you know, yeah. the power was out. Like, basically, the witch has no physical presence in the world, which I, I like that they sort of established that as a baseline and said, no, we're never going to let her get her walk up. She's never going to walk up and touch somebody on the back of the shoulder or something. It can't happen. But so she starts manipulating their perception through these various forces, you know, so the radio broadcasts have all been fake. They've been fake since the moment they cut into her and they hear the let the sun shine in song that she likes, which is one of the only things that was like, what? <laughs> like, why would, why that song? It's creepy, right? Don't get me wrong. Yeah. You like hearing any other like fun, happy song in the creepy context, but I almost wanted it to be. And maybe that maybe let the sunshine in is some old Puritan song that would have been sung back then, but I would have almost preferred that it be either a riff on or a take on something that she would have had contextual understanding of in the, you know, 1600s, you know, updated or modified. And maybe that song is, I kind of doubt it, but you know, that was the, like, just one of the things as I watched it the second time being like, why that song though? I mean, it, I understand why it's there. That felt like but- the most cliche horror movie thing in the film it was pretty cliche yeah that's that's a, a little bit weak i know you need it you got to have that kind of we touch point to song. keep coming back to it you need a creepy song right creepy song's gonna seal the deal um and so austin his girlfriend is dead he's killed his dad uh so dad kills girlfriend son kills dad son's trying to get out of the mortuary right he's trying to escape the morgue and so he's trying to use the 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 back way through the, the storm doors embedded in the ground and a, tr- a tree limb has fallen on them. Is what they, they believe the dad tried to open them before he couldn't get them open. And so he goes back up to it and the cops are supposedly there and he hears a cop on the other side being like, we're moving the branch, we're moving the branch. And then the guy starts singing the creepy song. So, you know, it's not true. He sees his father's dead body sort of in the same basic condition as the witch, you know, the whited out eyes and everything. He has a vision of him and then falls backwards off of the stairs and dies. And so this is the point I was, again, I was watching this with my partner and, and she was like, Oh, I thought everything was okay. Why? Ah, you know? So I think part of the issue with why, because the audience score for this on Rotten Tomatoes is quite a bit lower than the, the, the critic score. And I think this is why it's a downer ending. Right. Yeah. And downer horror movie endings are always a risk. It doesn't have a conjuring style happy ending, mm-hmm. but with a little nope. bit of a suggestion of a sequel. This doesn't have that. This movie is done and they're not making another one. <laughs> yeah, we're not making another one. All these people are fucking dead. And and, you know, it's it's a choice. I think it works thematically for this movie, but I think it would have been somewhat interesting to have Emil Hirsch survive and then have to explain which didn't happen at the last crime scene, right? Nobody lived, nobody there to piece together the story. Now, but again, this sort of idea of the witch continuing on, right? Like the reset button has been hit for her. So what's, you know, her going on and sort of potentially doing this to other people, which is heavily implied at the end. If Emil Hirsch was around to say, to at least share his experience of what he believed happened, it's not what happened, 
right? Like it's not true and it could all be discounted, but to have him sort of doggedly holding on and saying like, no, this is what we saw. This is what we experienced. I think that would have been an interesting way to mix it up a little bit. Like it's fine if the sheriff doesn't believe him and thinks that, you know, the son just went nuts and killed his girlfriend, killed his dad because he couldn't handle being a medical technician for a mortuary service or whatever. Like, you know, that's fine. But you know, the fact that every, the, the slate is totally wiped clean we have no answers. We don't know what happened. Um, it does lead to the sheriff having a good line of being like, get this body out of my fucking county. Like, just get it. I just, yeah, I don't want to see it. Just, we're done here, right? I don't want to know what they went on with it. Just get it out of here. Which, of course, you know, if they did want to make another, you know, a sequel, I don't see that happening. Yeah. Why would you? But, you know, that's, she's in the body. If the body's in the back of the police van, the deputy's like talking to his wife or something about, no, honey, that's not what I would do. I, I would do this instead. And then the song comes over the the radio. Yeah. And, you know, so not sequel bait per se, but the idea that, you know, this isn't the last time that the witch will have her revenge. And it kind of makes um, you wonder how many other times has it happened? Right. Yeah. I think it's heavily implied that this has been going on for this hundreds is the of witch's years. Stick, you know? shtick. Like this is what she does. <clears throat> Yeah, like I think the idea was that, you know, so the initial setup, it seems, and this is that this couple was having a contractor come in to renovate their basement. They were digging up the basement to begin the renovation process. They found the body, which means that someone in the past had driven to Virginia from somewhere, dug eight feet down in the ground or whatever it was, you know, because it was I, I think it was even like a split level, which means like your split level, like your lower level would only be about five feet under the ground. So if they built, you know, they dug a grave and they stuck the body down there. If you started digging up the floor of one of those places, you might find something like that, you know? So there was some, you know, a little bit of thoughtfulness there applied to it. Um, But yeah, the implication is that somebody at some point, you know, had had an interaction with the body in the past, drove it to what they presumed was the middle of nowhere dumped the body, covered it up, forgot about it. <clears throat> and then a hundred years later, some dumb asshole builds a, sub- a, a suburb there and, you know, now we find it again. So there's some, some really interesting sort of like layered stuff going on in terms of, you know, where would this have come from? What might've happened? You know, that kind of thing. It, again, it makes total sense to me that the script was on the blacklist because it's the kind of script that if you like scripts, and you like movies and how they're constructed, this movie hits all of those beats. Yeah. Great mystery, solid, easy to, to sort of put together, you know, sets and locations. You have to be thoughtful about it, but still you, you know what you need, right? It's not like we've, we've got to go to Paris for six weeks. You know, we've got to go to Egypt. You know, it looks like none of that garbage, right? It's like, this is a house in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of shit. And that's it. Um, and and so like it's it's got that sort of ideal all of the pieces that you would want to be in a good script are there and and this definitely has them um so the you know the witch is healed the the dad sacrifices himself to allow her healing to take place we don't know how much of that is true it's very possible that the entirety of what we just saw was in their heads and they never once touched the body like that's also potentially part of it. Yeah. There is an implication that the bones and stuff were healed. So, you know, if, if that's the case, then certainly something did happen, but I like that it's somewhat ambiguity. Uh, and you know, there's some ambiguity there. It's ambiguous as to 
how much of what we saw was real, how much of what we saw was fake. Um, you know, obviously the the storm and everything that we're told about the power and everything like that, all of those things were were lies, you know, told to them by the witch to convince them that they're they were trapped, right? And and that's, you know, uh, that's pretty much it. That's one of the things I like about it. This isn't a complicated movie. There's there's not a lot writing on it. It's just very well executed, solid script, great actors in there, especially Brian Cox. Again, Emil Hirsch is good too, but I, I don't know if there's anything that he specifically brings to this that makes me be like Emil Hirsch was the guy. <laughs> um, but, but Brian Cox is very good because he yeah. does kind of carry the bulk of the film. Um, he's providing most of the exposition. He's the one who's sort of delving into the the pathology behind. And, and for what it's worth, he does do you know as much character development as you can in a in a movie that's this small. I think he brings yeah, a I lot so. to those those characters, and I think I don't know. I I liked the father son dynamic. You know, love a father son story, even if it ends horribly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> even if it ends badly. Yeah, I think especially when he reaches his breaking point and realizes that he's going to have, if his son's going to live, he's going to have to give something up, which is something that he couldn't do for his wife, right? You almost feel like it's the thing that he would have told his wife, like, I'll take the hit if you, if, if you just survive, right? It, it, they feel, you know, it's, it's not directly drawn right there. You know, no character makes that statement that like, I'll do this for you, honey. Like nobody's going to do that. Cause that's, that's not the kind of tone this movie is set for itself, but it feels like for a guy that felt like he was always in control, he was rendered powerless by this tragic event. And now he has acknowledged that, you know, he needs to exceed control in order for, you know, something good to happen. Of course, it doesn't save his son's life. She kills him too. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, it's still a the good moment <laughs> for his character. It is. It really is. When a witch is trying to murder your whole family <laughs> by convincing you that the world is the way it's not supposed to be, just sacrifice yourself anyway. No, I, <laughs> a message from your local witch. Um yeah, it's it's a really fascinating sort of thing. It's a it, it's if they had ten more minutes in this movie, it could have been an interesting horror film and a bit of an interesting sort of father son character study. It could have been both of those things. Um, maybe they sit around and they have a snack together and they talk about some things that aren't really what they need to talk about, but it's close enough, right? We literary fiction ourselves into, into a a relationship or something, but you know, that's not really what the movie's trying to do. I I guess let's, let's briefly address, does this movie truly descend into schlock? I I don't don't think I'm comfortable saying that that's the case. Does it descend into some traditional horror sort of tropey stuff, you know, creepy man in hallway, you know, the bell, you know, does it have some of those things? Sure. But they're set up earlier, right? All of these things are established. It's not just being thrown out there, you know? So I, I, I'm resistant to say that it goes full schlock. I will say that it goes full horror, right? Like it shifts from a psychological horror into a horror film for those scenes, but I don't think that's bad necessarily. Um, and again, we need some kind of escalation of danger because there really is no danger, 
right? That's the irony of this film is that it's just a dead body on a table. So what's the, where's the danger come from? And that danger of course has to be manufactured out of, you know, thin air in some cases, but so yeah, I, I would probably push back against schlock. I mean, if you were hoping for something quieter, um, you know, if you're hoping for an Ari Aster, you know, midsummer kind of thing yeah. <laughs> or, or heredity or hereditary yeah, or something not an, like it's not an A24 film. No, <laughs> no, it's, it's just not that. And I'm okay with that. Right. Like that's, you could do this movie in that style. I, I'm not always in the mood but, to think so deeply about movies I'm watching. I know that sounds terrible, but I'm just not, <laughs> like, I'm just not always in the mm-hmm. mood for that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and part of a project like this is figuring out where you want to go with it. And, you know, do you want to stay in those realms? Like, I don't get the impression from Overdahl that he is, that he's that sort of horror director. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't see him directing the Baba Duke. you know, like, I mean, and I don't call that up, you know, because that's a sort of deeply psychological horror film. Um, you know, again, Ari Aster would be another potential touch point for that. But but yeah, I mean, sometimes that just is moving away from horror in a very specific direction. Yeah. And that direction is fine, but not everything needs to go that way. Even if you do sort of build the first half of your film with what could be confused as one of those. Right. And that's really the thing is that the first half of this movie is kind of quiet. It's contemplative. It's it's, you know, dealing with something very real world and very natural in the case of something like an autopsy. So I could see if you started this film, you watched for 40 minutes and you were like, Oh, it's one of those. And then you're like, Ooh, where, what places could we go? Right. What deep intelligent conversations could we have? What people could be roasted alive in bear suits? Um, (laughs) You know, like you, you could, you could go that way, but then this film goes a very different direction. And honestly, looking at scary stories to tell in the dark, which I don't want to reference too much since you haven't seen it, but it, I'm like, okay, yeah, I get it. This is, this is what Overdahl's into. He, this is what he likes. Um, because there's some very similar sort of moments in that. Whereas, you know, I would say that there is a lot of good character development in scary stories. There's a lot of, um, you know, solid world building, you know, the things that you would want, but then it does eventually there's a scarecrow man that's going to hunt a kid through a cornfield and he's going to fucking kill his ass. Like that's going to happen because that's what scary stories to tell in the dark does. And so like it, it does make a kind of sense that that's where it goes. But if you're hoping for that kind of, you know, much more low key kind of horror experience, that's not what Overdahl is, is attempting to do here. Um, And again, I, I think if it stayed low key, I don't think there would be any consequence. Like nothing bad would happen. They would just sort of deal with it and then they would move on. But that's not how this can go. And so I think that that's, you know, sort of interesting. But, well, cool. I, was, I wanted to get your take on that because when I, once I started reading, you know, oh, it's just schlock. I'm like, eh, no. Yeah, like, really sh- you know, agree. schlock is, schlock is, <laughs> I'll reference Halloween Kills again. <laughs> Schlock is having a crowd of people in a hospital lobby screaming evil dies tonight. And then you have Michael Myers in the middle of a gang fight or a people, people who have people who have circled up into the gang fight, like sharks versus jets style around him and then just start hitting him with various like farm tools 
and baseball bats. And then they beat him to a pulp and they think he's dead. And then he gets back up and he murders them all. Yay. (laughs) That is schlock, (laughs) right? That is the, the pinnacle of schlock. This maybe a little, I don't know. Hard to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so, I mean, as the film wraps up, you know, we do get an indication that this will continue, that the body is going to another location and maybe the purpose is resurrection, right? Because the final shot of the film, the very last moment is of uh, the feet with the toe tag and the toe wiggles, yeah. right? Almost as if she is absorbing power. She's regenerating from these these people right and that process had been stopped for a while maybe when the last group that buried her but now she's starting to sort of somehow resurrect as a function of this and so that's you know an interesting thing it's a nice little tag on the end it's you know something that in terms of horror or scary stories you know you kind of always want to have a little something there and i think it ends nicely but you know but the charm of this film and i would call this film charming is its scale it's quality for that scale, right? Like this is something, you know, I could almost see a shorter version of this being like a 30 or 40 minute student film, right? Like this, it's got that feel to it, which I think is really interesting to see in a movie that it did wind up with a decent budget and, you know, good actors. Um, but it's, it's really just about how well the scale works at both generating some scares, having a great, cool sort of tense mystery at the center and then also, you know, a nice sort of intriguing conclusion that leaves some things ambiguous at the end. So that's it's that's a hard thing to mix and jumble together. And I think Overdahl does it really well. I agree. This was very surprising. Yeah, you hadn't you hadn't seen this before, I suggested. That, right? I, I had this, I mean, when it was going on and off Netflix constantly, I had this in my watch list for probably since it was released on Netflix the first time because it has, you know, one of those kind of catching covers. It's got a catchy title. And I was like, oh, this looks, this could be fun. But, you know, Netflix is Netflix. Uh, there's, there's, there are, there are a million movies. There's so many movies. How will I ever so watch them all? <laughs> um, and I never got around to it. Mm. Yeah. I, I think it was, you know, I think there are quite a few people who do know about this film, but it's one that I, I just, you know, when I, when I talk to people about horror films, even people who are super knowledgeable about horror films, I'll mention this and I'll, I'll get a quizzical look, you know, just like a, what's that? Um, so I like, you know, this is one that I felt pretty strongly that we need to talk about just so that maybe a few more people will see it, you know, because if you're a horror fan or you're horror adjacent, like you like, you do like some of those, you know, sort of scary psychological films. This movie has a lot going on with that. Like I said, it does have some more traditional sort of scares and jumps and, you know, what have you's at the end, but I think it earns most of them and it gets there in a really interesting way. So, I mean, this is one that I think just more people should be aware of, right? Yeah. Just like, this is a cool little flick and um, one that obviously got Guillermo del Toro's attention. Um, I know Stephen King has mentioned this as being uh, a fairly recent horror favorite. Uh, so he enjoyed it, which I could definitely see that being a King's alley. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's pretty well, obvious I mean, this does sound like something there. he would have written in a story like, well, we examined a dead body and it's a witch and it's not dead. Oh, like that's 
Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's that's ties to New story. England. I mean, like that's that's just yeah. I could have definitely seen this being a, a short story in one of his collections or something along those lines. Like he certainly could have have mined this area, and and people wouldn't have really blinked about it. Been like, oh yeah, this definitely feels like a thing that he would do. Uh, especially with the father-son relationship. I mean, one of the yeah. things about King's short stories that he always does is he always anchors them in character relationships. <clears throat> even his especially plotty ones, even like the Mangler, you know, I mean, to, to reference that one again, uh, even that one's got, you know, some strong character relationships that anchor it together. And King's good about sort of setting up those chess pieces and moving them all in a way that seems interesting. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't really have much else to say about the secret autopsy of Jane Doe. I think it's shot well. I think it's, it's incredibly swiftly paced, which again, I think is something that a lot of modern horror movies are just not doing anymore. I think they've, they've gotten into this. Everything has to be two hours and 15 minutes long now. And it's like, dude, horror That's premises. That's that is, you, you, they're thin. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta have a bomb diggity horror premise to keep that thing rolling mm. for two hours. Like it better be freaking amazing. And the problem is, is that most of them aren't, you know, like yeah. horror premises are just, they're designed. I mean, if anything, I think horror and, and comedy are the two in some ways, purest film forms, right? Because they're, they're focused, they're geared around particular ideas and then you get out right yeah. like we're done here um and that's and that's okay like i think the film industry needs to be reminded that that's fine it's 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 good to do that um not every movie has to take up the entirety of my sunday afternoon to watch it i would like okay. it if they didn't i feel like i would watch more movies if they were a little more if they, if they were less cavalier about just taking up my entire day yes and you know uh, again, I understand that we live in the, the bingeable world of entertainment. I think a lot of the one thing that I'm really waiting for is the first truly great horror television show where every hour is its own standalone horror story. And not anthology, I mean, not even anthologized necessarily. Like, I don't, I mean, it could be the same characters week to week. But to, to basically make a little mini horror movie every week. And I know Masters of Horror did this to a certain extent. Like that's kind of what John Carpenter and those other, you know, Toby Hooper as well. Like that's what those dudes are trying to do is make these little mini horror movies. But we haven't but really <clears throat> been successful since The X-Files. The X-Files no. managed to deliver a lot of horror in, you know, 50 telev television minutes. Yeah. So, I mean, somebody needs to... To, to like get a horror premise that makes sense and then, and then run it, you know, X file style. Yeah. Um, but with budget and great script writing, which I think is something that even X files struggled with occasionally. Sometimes their scripts were, they were always solid, but they weren't always exceptional. Yeah. Um, although I will say, I mean, I know the one you're thinking of and that of course is tombs. Um, that's one of the great yeah. horror episodes. Like squeeze uh, was great. You know, Home squeeze. was Home, of course. I mean, so terrifying. It hasn't just, even aired again. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't even like to watch it. It's just too much. It's 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 rough. It's real rough. Ugh. She slides out from underneath oh, that bed, God. man. <laughs> <laughs> but 
in any case, uh, so I think we're going to uh, leave it there. We'll let our conversation sort of wrap up with that, that, you know, there's room for short, effective horror in the world today. Please make more. It's a good. Um, but this is a, a big recommend for me. Just want to, uh, this also had the benefit of being a surprise, right? I just sort of found it and I tried it and I was like, wow, that was really good. And I had zero expectations. So in some cases, you know, just go into it, see what you think. And, and hopefully you will enjoy it as much as, as I did. And I guess we did. Um, so anything else you want to say about the autopsy of Jane Doe? I would like it if there were more movies like this, more indie horror. That's not like art house horror. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That's an important distinction too. He said, cause that, I love me some art house horror. I really do. But eh, what was that Amanda Seyfried movie we did on here? That was really bad. That was like art house horror. <laughs> um, oh. the, the, Things heard and not seen, or yes. is that it? Yeah. Things seen yeah. and something yeah, about things, things being seen. <laughs> things seen and not heard. I think something that's what it was. Yeah. Um. That's that's what I'm 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 wanting to get away from in those smaller horror films and get back to things that are I don't know small and fun like this. This was just a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, things heard and seen. Yeah, there we go. (laughs) Hearing things, seeing things, the movie. Hearing things, seeing things, looking at stuff, talking about stuff. Uh, Yes, absolutely. Um, Another film that I would kind of throw in there um, that I I think if we get a chance, we may talk about on here as well is one that came out uh, last year uh, called Censor, um, which is set during the Video Nasties uh, time period in Great Britain where mm. all of the VHS releases were getting, you know, looked at by a sensor board and then established ratings. And it follows one of these film sensors as she believes that she sees her long lost sister in one of these films and then begins to try to track her down and see if, if she really is her sister. Um, very intriguing film. Uh, I didn't, there's some people who really loved it. I didn't love, love it, but it was doing some really cool things. It looks really good. Cause it tries to subtly watching Garth Marenghi has really spoiled me on people <laughs> who try to re- who try to recreate like late eighties, early nineties, British television shows, because that move that show does such an incredible job at doing it that when other people do it, now I just look at it and say like, I know what you're doing. <laughs> I know how you pulled that off. Um, but it's, it's very cool. Um, it's, it's really atmospheric um, and, and rides that line a little bit more towards the art house, but not quite. It's, it's a really interesting sort of line that it walks. Um, written by uh, Prano Bailey Bond, who is, is very much an up and comer in, in horror in general. So excited to see what she does next. But um yeah, so so that may be another one we put on our list and, and we maybe come back to and, and take a look at once you can get a chance to see it. But um, yeah, very interesting, very interesting. But there are certainly people out there who I think are trying to make the type of film that we're talking about here yeah. um, and who see, still see the value in quality original horror projects that don't have to grow to this bombastic scale, which I think is is really good. And hopefully we'll, 
you know, again, horror is a big genre, lots of room in here for everybody. Um, I don't like horror purists who say like, this is what real horror is, man. Right. Like I don't like that because all of it encompasses, like we just have what we like, right? Like yeah. you can fit evil dead in here. You can fit Friday the 13th in here. You There's can room for everyone in here. Everybody can benefit. And so let's just find the stuff we like and make sure that we're not putting the, the, the thumb screws to genres that a wonderful place in horror, but maybe just don't fit your particular box. Yeah. And, and same for me, like I, I'll, I'll watch the next Halloween movie. I, I'll watch Halloween kills. I'll watch them all. I don't care. Right. I mean, I love them, but they exist and I'm glad they exist and I'll watch them if I get a chance and it's totally okay. But anyway, uh, all right. So I guess we will, we will wrap it up there. Uh, where can people find you on social media to tell you about strange autopsy experiences that they've had? I would love to hear all about your autopsies. Uh, you can catch me at Baskinator on Twitter. That's right. Uh, I'm fascinated by autopsies in general. I think in a, in a weird alternate universe where I was a better student who cared more about school, I might have been a doctor. Maybe. Probably not. I like books too much. I I'll like just reading. watch movies. Um, <laughs> I'll just watch movies and talk about them on the internet. It's fine. Um, but no, uh, if you want to find me, uh, you can find me at T Baskin. Of course, you can get us together at F Peace Theater if you would be so inclined. And you can email us at failurepeace at gmail.com. All right. So we will wrap it up for this week, but we will be back next week with another discussion of some cinematic failure, some place where Hollywood was just like, I don't know. Do that, I guess. And then they put it out there and we can watch it and enjoy it and have fun. All right. So we'll see you next time. Bye bye.